0: Hello, welcome to Reference Desk, a performing arts and culture podcast. I'm your host, Garth Grimble, and in each episode, I'll explore a piece of dance culture with references, popular, personal, and otherwise. I'll share a companion video link so y'all have a visual reference of what I'm talking about. Let's get into it. Hello, listeners. This is week four of season two, the halfway point, the middle, the place where we all get sleepy, the time when you have a midterm, the hump day of it all. So before I begin, give yourself a pat on that back, take a deep breath, and know that I appreciate you, listener, and your continued interest in dance and support of this podcast. So far, we have explored the creating of space and how we might shift our ideas of performing with Daniel Fernandez-Pasquale, took a dive into the visibility and invisibility of Native dances, and heard from Rose Hammock about dances of the Pomo tribe and how being in ceremony informs spatial awareness. Last week, I shared a bit on West African dance's history in regards to the Black Arts movement here in the U.S., before talking to Mwisi Kongo Malanga about traditional Congolese dance, and how we define performance spaces. Before moving on to the next chapter, let's revisit the first episode of this season. In that episode, I played about five minutes of audio from a Merce Cunningham Dance Company rehearsal to invite listeners to think about the sound of a dance, to question what is the experience of a dance, not based on seeing not centered on sight. But that exercise assumes that one can choose which senses to engage. With a hearing or vision impairment, engaging with dance may not be a question of which senses to center, but is the dance itself accessible to all available senses? Before I understood making dances multi-sensory accessible in any sort of capacity political or mission-driven context i was obliviously mindful of it on a personal level in the first episode of this podcast i shared an anecdote about my granddad and finding a dance connection with him despite his disinterest in dance my grandmother his wife on the other hand loved to dance We spent many hours dancing around the kitchen to Peggy Lee, Nina Simone, and Louis Armstrong, and she would see me perform whenever possible. For most of my life, she had limited hearing capability. When I would show her videos of my performances, I'd watch her watch the dance, and I could tell by the way she tilted her head towards the screen which moments were audibly clear to her and which were not which tonal frequencies were available to her experience of the dance. Seeing her see dance informed my goals in making dance. I want to be clear, I'm not equating the experience of hearing impairment or deafness between hearing loss due to old age and being born deaf. It's in my relationship with my grandmother that I began to consider how the dances I made would be experienced by her, someone with hearing loss. Cut to 2018. It's tech week for a new show I am producing with my creative partner and composer of the reference desk theme music, Heather Stockton. She is working with the dancers on stage, and I'm going over our sound cues with the stage manager. As we're exploring the levels, I say, "Ah, I don't think my grandma could hear that. Let's bump it up, or let's lower that. One of the dancers commented on my oddly personal barometer for sound design, and like any patterns, once questioned, intentions are revealed. Was I tailoring the show for one audience member who would not even see it live? Or could my personal concern be put to a broader use? During the same run of that show, Heather and I were contacted by Jess Curtis, performer, choreographer, and director of Jess Curtis Gravity. He asked if he could come to our dress rehearsal and performances to beta test Audible Narration, a new technology and practice to support disabled audience members. We said yes, thrilled to make our show more accessible, and excited to learn about a service we were largely ignorant of at the time. Jess saw the dress rehearsal run, and then, before a curtain on opening night, he and his collaborator Tiffany, who is visually impaired, met us and the cast. During the show, Jess sat in the back of the house narrating the performance into a stenographer's mask, and his narration was transmitted to headphones worn by Tiffany for her to experience the show. At the pre-show meet-and-greet, Jess asked us to move through or hold different parts of the choreography that were difficult to explain in narration. Once in position, Tiffany used her hands to feel the shapes and relationships of our bodies to each other and what I learned as part of a sensory tour. This experience made me realize how one-dimensional and inaccessible my work was in not recognizing multi-sensory engagement. And it connected the consideration I held for my grandmother in the sound of a performance to a broader, more intelligent effort to make performing arts accessible. If you haven't guessed it already, Thursday's interview is with Jess Curtis, and we go deeper on the development and implementation of Access Services, as well as his artistic career, and how both are responses to diverse conceptions and experiences of space. That concludes this week's episode of Reverence Desk. The theme music is composed by Heather Stockton. You can find more information at Reference Desk Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening.